Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dubes. We're on the eve of Election Day 2016. At the time of this recording, we still have one week to go, but it feels like an eternity. So to help us sort through the final stretch of this election and to give us some insight into where we've been, where we are, and what happens next, I'm joined by senior fellow John Hudak. He is deputy director of the Center for Effective Public Management and, as you know, a regular contributor to this podcast. John is also the author of the just-published book, Marijuana, A Short History, available now on the Brookings website. Also today, stay tuned for a segment on infrastructure challenges for the next president and a discussion with an author in his new book about global cities. John, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Fred, thanks for having me. Thanks also for your contributions from Las Vegas, where you were just a few weeks ago. Entirely my pleasure. So we are almost at the end of this election. Where do you think things stand? Right now, things still look good for Hillary Clinton. She has a demographic and electoral college advantage over her opponent, and that has gone up and down a bit, but her advantage has remained fairly robust throughout most of the campaign season. If you take a look at the map, and you take a look at the map from 2012, Clinton doesn't even need to do as well as Barack Obama did. She just needs to lose only a few states that he uh, won, ultimately. So that sets up a pre-existing benefit for the Democratic candidate, in this case Clinton, And Trump is not making any inroads. In fact, a look at North Carolina, he's actually losing states that Romney won. And that's a real problem for him and a real problem for the Republican Party. We are going to talk about the so-called October surprise, this James Comey email situation in a minute, because I know that should have some bearing on it. But let's stick with the polls and the comparison. We do like to compare to previous campaigns, especially to the 08 and the 12. Are those useful comparisons considering, I mean, those are four years ago, eight years ago, the demographics and the composition have changed, the candidates have changed? It's really important to look at history whenever you're trying to understand where a presidential election is. It's not necessarily a perfect comparison, but it's the best data that we have to try to inform where we are right now. If you look back at 2008 and in 2012, the races were a about where they are right now, the Democrat having uh, a notable advantage, an advantage outside the margin of error. And in both of those races, the Democrat ultimately went on to win. The composition of the electorate this time is different than it was in 2012 and different than it was in 2008. It's less white. We have some evidence to suggest that there may be a bump up in the female vote this year. But ultimately, the Democratic candidate is looking at a similar advantage that her predecessor had in 2008 and 2012, and any changes in demographics will only pad her advantage. And so if you're a Team Clinton, you're looking out at what history looked like and where the polls are today, and you're feeling confident, not certain, but fairly confident going into election night. And a lot of voters have already voted in early voting in many of the states that allow it, right? Millions of people have early voted. And even if an issue comes up uh, with a candidate or they want to change their mind, there's nothing that they can do about that. And the trends from 2012 uh, look pretty similar to what is going on today in many of the states in terms of a democratic turnout, in terms of turnout among certain ethnic groups. And In that sense, it's making this year look a little bit more like 2012, and that has to be music to the ears of the Democratic Party. 
Um, last question about polling. I checked one of those uh, polling averages sites, and it looks sort of like maybe Donald Trump is improving a little bit. And some people would say, well, that's Republicans so-called coming home. Is that a real phenomenon, coming home? There's a few factors affecting the polls and the polling averages right now. Uh, one is that after a very good six to eight week period for the Clinton campaign in which they were able to expose some real scandal for Donald Trump, uh, that benefit, that bump is starting to wear away. So in some polls, Clinton is losing a couple of points. There is some evidence that Trump is having a bit of an uptick at the same time. And typically, this idea of Republicans uh, coming home or Democrats coming home is a bit overstated. But in this election, it's not. There are a lot of Republicans who were very skeptical of Donald Trump. His support among Republicans was significantly lower than it was for Mitt Romney or John McCain or George W. Bush. And because of that, the ability of Donald Trump to lure Republicans, committed Republicans to his side, will be something that's really important for him. And if that trend continues, he will see an uptick in his vote. But if you are in the final days of the election and you are banking on being able to convince people who have been skeptical of you for 18 months to finally come into the fold, um, it's a difficult place to be in. It's not to say it's impossible, but it's a tough sell at that point. John, one of the other major parts of campaign and election mechanics is something that you've spoken about recently in our Elections 101 video series and in other places, and that's the ground game. How and why does the ground game matter, and when does it matter the most? Ground games are the ability and the organization of campaigns to get the vote out. That is opening campaign offices, hiring staff, coordinating volunteers, and having a strategy in place that makes sure that you're reaching out to every voter you possibly can who you think will come out and vote for you. So if that means... Uh, giving people a last-minute bit of messaging about how important the election is, whether it is phone banking to remind people when Election Day is. It's hard to imagine in this environment that people actually forget when it is time to vote, but that happens, particularly in early voting states where you're talking to people about all the different days they have an opportunity to vote. These are all important. Also, getting people to the polls. It's important to remember not everyone has a car. Not everyone knows exactly where their voting precinct is. And so actually driving people to the polls is part of a ground game. It is essential to win a presidential race that you have a top-notch ground game. Part of it comes from the presidential campaign. Part of it comes from the national party. A lot of it comes in coordination with state parties. And for a campaign not to have a ground game can be devastating, especially because a lot of polls make assumptions about turnout among certain groups, among partisans, and among others. And if a ground game can't activate up to pollsters' expectations, the polls can be wrong. And Never does a ground game matter more than in the final two weeks of a race. All of the early voting states will be voting during that time, and it's the lead-up to Election Day where all Americans have the opportunity to vote. And if you're not contacting your voters, contacting people who you think are going to be your core supporters, and making sure that they know when, where, and how to vote, you put yourself at a real disadvantage. I think we've seen throughout this fall especially that 
Donald Trump's ground game mechanics just aren't at the same level as Hillary Clinton's. Is that an accurate assessment? It's an entirely accurate assessment. Trump's campaign organization has been a shell of what Clinton's has been. There is some argument or some analysis that suggests that Trump is focusing on a business-style efficiency. And perhaps that works in business, but it doesn't work in politics. You need a lot of people on the ground knocking on doors in order to maximize your vote numbers. It's not to say that Trump is at a total disadvantage. The Republican National Committee, the National Party, does have a ground game in place as well, and that can help supplement the shortfalls in his campaign. But it's also important to remember the Democratic Party has a ground game too, and they will be assisting what is a more prepared Democratic campaign in trying to get out the vote. And so the differences in readiness between Clinton and Trump in terms of getting voters to the polls could have a very serious impact on the outcome come Election Day. Let's move on to an issue that has been top of mind to nearly everybody who's paying attention over the last few days, and that's this letter from FBI Director James Comey to Congress suggesting that there are potentially additional emails to look at related to the Clinton email investigation. Um, We learn some new stuff every day. We don't need to get into the reasons for it. There's been a lot of criticism directed at Director Comey, but is in the nature of what we would call an October surprise. And we thought the Access Hollywood tape was the October surprise, but maybe there's multiple October surprises. So have there been any revelations, if you will, in the month of October, close to the election, that really have dramatically changed the trajectory of the outcome? October surprises are something that the media loves to talk about every year. Oftentimes, there's something odd or interesting or surprising that happens in that final month before the election. It's not uncommon. What is uncommon is for that event to have an impact on the outcome of the election. So if you look back historically, you have a series of events over the course of elections that either happen because of happenstance or because an opposition research file that one campaign had leaked the information at a strategic time. Those are things that campaigns are terrified of. We really don't have evidence, though, that it affects the outcome. So if you look in 2008, for instance, there were serious stock market losses the first week of October. One would say, well, that's certainly going to hurt the incumbent party. That's going to hurt Republicans. The challenge for that argument, however, is that the problems around the financial crisis, the onset of the financial crisis, had happened a couple of weeks before. And the advantage that Obama and Democrats got from the onset of the financial crisis were already baked in. And so those huge losses in October only continued what was an Obama advantage and ultimately didn't have a real impact on the outcome of the election. So all this is to say that October surprises happen, but they don't really affect campaigns. Let's take a break here for another Metro Lens with Metropolitan Policy Program Fellow Adi Tomer on the challenges and opportunities of infrastructure, no matter who the next president is. My name is Adi Tomer, and I lead the infrastructure portfolio at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. As the 2016 presidential campaign nears its conclusion, the conversation has devolved to one with little clarity or substance. But infrastructure, however, continues to stand as one of the few policy areas where both candidates actually find common ground. 
Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have both promised major reforms in hundreds of billions of dollars in new federal infrastructure investment. If implemented, these plans could serve as the initial steps towards a larger national effort to modernize aging roads, rails, ports, and other facilities crucial to a productive U.S. economy. The president-elect and new Congress, though, are going to face daunting challenges around governance and finance to deliver on those promises. Infrastructure is a highly stratified policy sector within Washington and between federal, state, and local actors. Any new multi-billion dollar federal infrastructure effort is going to require major congressional action to approve additional borrowing or business tax reform, accompanied by major programmatic reforms to overcome existing institutional silos and promote state and metropolitan innovations. This will not be easy. But before focusing on how much to invest, federal leaders also need to recognize where to invest for the best results. Focusing too much on aggregate dollar figures not only overlooks the range of infrastructure needs across the country, it also fails to consider the specific criteria and performance measures necessary to make sure that we get precise returns on investment. Economic, social, and environmental challenges vary considerably from across the country meaning the country can no longer afford to deploy federal spending programs that aim for geographic equity alone. While taking on infrastructure is an enormous task, we have a few ideas on how to get things done. Overall, we recommend using federal investments and regulations to target and empower metropolitan areas and states to make investments that deliver improved outcomes. We can't afford to spend money on infrastructure simply for infrastructure's sake. We need federal policy to be in service of a more productive economy, improved access to economic opportunity, and a more sustainable and resilient built environment. That means a more competitive approach to transportation, whether it's enabling the country's busiest airport's ability to self-finance their improvements, or promoting new street designs that support a multimodal and probably autonomous future. It means getting serious about directly investing in local water systems, ensuring we don't see another tragedy like Flint in the coming years. It means addressing the digital divide, by boosting subscription rates for digitally at-risk populations and offering digital skills training to leverage all the opportunities America's advanced economy can offer. It also means using workforce development to create long-term labor opportunities in the infrastructure sector, not just short-term construction jobs, but operational jobs that are well-paying and come with low barriers to entry. Coursing through all of these recommendations is a laser-like focus on data and performance measurement. We live in the opening stanza of the digital age, and data is the new steam power of this generation. Government must figure out how to collect it, refine it, and deploy it to advance our shared prosperity. Finally, it's worth taking a moment to consider what can and cannot get done in suggested timeframes. Both candidates suggest the first 100 days is the ideal time to address infrastructure reform. But I'm not so sure we need to rush. Infrastructure investments last for generations and natural path dependencies mean once federal officials establish a policy framework, it becomes really hard to change course. This isn't the same moment as when President Obama first took office. Today, the country is experiencing more robust economic growth, and construction unemployment sits near 5%. As such, Congress and the next administration should focus on the first 365 days in office, not 100, to better define the country's most pressing infrastructure challenges and craft a truly comprehensive strategy recognizing the benefits should last for decades. Head to the Brookings website and search for our 2016 infrastructure agenda. There you'll find more detailed proposals and thoughts about how we can use federal infrastructure programs to create a more prosperous future for us all.
And now back to the studio with John Hudak. Stay tuned until the end for part one of a fascinating interview about global cities. Let's move on to then what happens after the election. We've kind of covered where we've been, where we are right now. So the election is over on Tuesday. I keep reminding myself to say that the election doesn't happen on Tuesday because it's been happening for weeks now. But the election day is Tuesday, November 8th, and then it's over. Then we will know who the next president is. But there's one more step, a couple more steps. There's the Electoral College. Can you remind our listeners, first of all, what the Electoral College has to do with this and what happens if one of the candidates doesn't get 270 Electoral College votes? The Electoral College is the indirect system by which the United States chooses a president. Americans go to the polls, and they don't actually vote for president on Tuesday. They vote for the electors in their state, or here in D.C. in the District of Columbia, who are tasked with voting for president. Uh, Between 140 and 150 million Americans are going to go to the polls on Tuesday, But the reality is only 538 people vote for president. Those are the members of the Electoral College chosen by state parties and who are tasked with casting those votes based on the results of a state-level election. Um, They are actual people. They typically meet in their state capital in mid-December. They cast their ballots. Those ballots are sealed, and they are addressed to the president of the Senate, who is Joe Biden. And he, when the new Congress convenes, opens those envelopes and before a joint session of Congress, counts those votes. Typically, someone, one of the two candidates, receives the necessary 270 electoral votes. And then the Congress certifies that that person will be sworn in as president on January 20th. There have been occasions in our history, and it can happen, that no candidate receives that majority. It can happen for two reasons. First, there can be an electoral college tie. Both major party candidates get 269 electoral votes. Or, if a third party candidate gets electoral votes, it can keep the uh, major party candidates from getting that necessary majority. When that happens, the House of Representatives is tasked with electing a president, and the Senate is tasked with electing a vice president. So that's a good segue, I think, to this idea of third-party candidates winning a state and thereby the state's electoral votes. That hasn't happened since 1968, when George Wallace won five states. Now we have Evan McMullen running as an independent, running hard in his home state of Utah, and there is the thought that he could actually win Utah and win those six electoral votes. Now, that could play into this electoral college scenario where the House could pick the candidate. Now, one thing I read somewhere, tell me if this is true, the House picks from the top electoral college vote getters, which if he won six, he would be one of the three candidates that the House would pick from. If there were a situation in which no one received a majority, the House would pick from the Electoral College vote getters, and Evan McMullen would be in that list if he were to win Utah. It is unlikely, I would argue, that he would win Utah. The polling uh, suggests that he is competitive. The polling also can be a bit faulty, um, particularly in states that aren't often polled. Utah is not a swing state, so typically presidential polling is not done in that state, which makes it harder to do good polling when you don't have experience with what a good poll or a bad poll looks like. In addition to that, 
Evan McMullen is not a serious presidential candidate. He doesn't have a national campaign organization. He's not raising funds like others are. He's not on the ballot in every state. And because of that, it suggests that there is a lack of capacity or a lack of ability to organize in the ways that are necessary to win a state outright. It's not to say it's impossible. And of course, if he has a shot at winning any state, it is Utah. But our understanding of presidential campaigns and campaign organization would say that it's hard for a third-party candidate to win a race. It's especially difficult for a third-party candidate like Evan McMullen to do so. Well, let's stick on this for just a second. If he does win Utah, do you think that will have any positive effect on the prospects of future third-party presidential candidates? I don't think it will, and here's why. It's easy to chalk up Evan McMullen's win to something other than a real taste for third parties in the United States. First, it is his home state. It is really the only state he's been campaigning in actively. It's one in which he has better name recognition than anywhere else. And because of that, the stars align quite powerfully for him. In addition to that, he doesn't belong to any third party in the United States. He is just an independent candidate. And I think for people who are looking for a vision from a partisan perspective, you would want a libertarian or a Green Party candidate or someone else to win a state like that. It's not going to create this wave behind Evan McMullen. He might be able to show you that it is possible once again for someone outside of the two major parties to win electoral votes, but he does not really signal anything in the United States other than a pair of candidates who a majority of Americans disapprove of, who was able to run an effective campaign in his home state, his one state, and really didn't matter beyond that. Let's talk about the transition. Probably Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump will be the next president, not Evan McMillan. Setting aside the question of which of those two will be the next president, just think about the transition process itself. What happens in the transition and how important is it in the scheme of things that we talk about politically and and socially here? The transition is already happening. Both presidential candidates appointed transition directors, have built transition teams, and they have been quietly doing so since before the party conventions. They have actively been doing so since the party conventions, and those processes will continue until Tuesday. After Tuesday, one of those transition teams will stop work. Um, whoever loses. Once the election happens, the transition team really ramps up its work. It has a tremendous task ahead of it. I think a lot of people think that the transition team is tasked solely with choosing the cabinet. But the reality is the next president will make about 4,000 political appointments. The transition team won't choose all of those. The transition team won't even choose a majority of those. They are charged with picking the top individuals for key positions throughout the administration. But they will work on policy design, on personnel, on functional parts of the transition, about how you actually start to move these people into office. They also have a lot of communication with existing executive branch staff. So The Clinton administration, if she is the president, will be talking a lot with the Obama administration. The Trump administration, if he is elected, will have very long conversations with the Obama administration as well. 
This is not a partisan thing. Most presidents are quite good about recognizing the needs of this transition process. But beyond the White House, uh, beyond even the cabinet offices, the cabinet secretaries, the agencies themselves will talk with the transition team about how to best onboard people and get people ready and have them understand what the jobs will take. One of the most impressive transitions in American history was actually George W. Bush to Obama. George W. Bush came to office in what was a rocky transition. Um, Many people remember the uh, less than gracious manner in which Bill Clinton and his team exited office. George W. Bush was committed to that not happening to his successor. And even though it was a change in party, if you talk to Obama officials, and I have, they will say that the Bush administration was extraordinarily helpful in that process. And my guess is because of that, Obama will be as well, regardless of who the president is. Well, that's interesting because that was obviously a Republican to a, a Democrat. Now, if Hillary Clinton does win the presidency, would you expect that her transition, because she's a Democrat and she's replacing a Democrat, would be necessarily smoother than if Donald Trump wins? You would think so. But we don't have too many examples of this in history of a same party transition after a two term president. Yeah. Uh, the last time it happened in 1988 was actually a pretty rocky transition from the Reagan administration to the Bush administration. Part of that may have been because Reagan and Bush were not entirely close, that they had very different teams. And if that is the standard, if that is the reason why a same party transition can be rocky, We would expect that not to be the case this year. The president and Secretary Clinton get along quite well. Their teams uh, have a lot of overlap. There are people who left the White House to go work for the Clinton campaign. And while there is certainly going to be uh, some strife and not perfect harmony between the two, uh, we have reason to think that there will be a pretty successful transition um, from same party to same party, if that's the case. Well, I'm going to dedicate some episodes in the coming months to this question of the transition, because I know that you and other scholars of Brookings will be looking at it pretty closely. So the true lame duck period, I don't like that term, but that's what we use, for President Obama really begins on Wednesday, November 9th. Uh, The election's over. We know who the next president is going to be, probably. What's left for him to accomplish? Can he really do anything of policy importance, you know, barring a national emergency? He really doesn't. Uh, He is, at that point, the caretaker of the government. He is there, as you said, in case of some sort of national or international emergency. In that case, he will certainly be acting. He will have a Congress that will be in session for at least a period of time that he could work with if necessary. But this is a Congress that has really shown itself unwilling to work with this president. And that's not necessarily a criticism of the Congress. It's just a reality of that relationship between the two branches. There is no reason to think that in the lame duck that that relationship would improve in any way. There are rumors that perhaps if a Republican Congress is facing a Clinton administration, they may move on some matters. That may particularly be true if the Republican Congress loses one of its chambers in the midterm. So if the Senate goes Democrat, uh, you might see Republicans trying to get legislation passed before they lose control of that chamber. But this is a system of separated powers. This political gamesmanship happens on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. So it's unlikely that we will see some 
a huge coming together between Republicans in Congress and Democrats in the White House to push significant legislation through in those last 75 days. Well, let's try to look far ahead into the future and then look back on 2016, regardless of who wins on Tuesday, if that's possible. What do you think people, especially perhaps political scientists like yourself, will be talking about in years to come when it comes to this election? There's a few things. The first, we're going to look back on a campaign in which rhetoric was um, at or among the worst in modern American uh, political history. Uh, We have a Republican presidential candidate who has gotten away with saying things that would tank almost any uh, other presidential candidate you can think of. You have a Democratic campaign that has focused almost entirely on using some of the Republican candidates' nastiest rhetoric against him and doing so very openly in TV ads and radio ads and on print mail and in stump speeches. Um, And so that divisiveness that has existed among the candidates has also been part of the mass public reaction to this. You've seen campaign rallies that can get brutal or even violent at times. And that is what this campaign will be remembered for, that type of almost out-of-control reality show-style politics that we've seen. I think there's a hope that most Americans take a deep breath and try to move past it. But That's going to be a big part of it. I think as a political scientist, I will look back on this election as one that you have to flag as an exception. A lot of the conventional wisdom that we have about presidential campaigns has been tossed out the window by this one. And so for years, political scientists, when they ran quantitative models, uh, they would always have a variable that indicated whether a state was in the South because the South always behaved in an odd way. It was deeply conservative, but it was heavily democratic. Um, It behaved differently than any other part of the country. And so having that dummy variable in there to indicate the South was something that was important. I feel like there's going to be a 2016 variable for presidency scholars into the future. And that's significant. That's something that really changes the nature of political science research as we know it. And There's a lot that we'll learn from this election, but there's a lot we're also going to need to forget from this election. I think the final thing is a real attention to how important primaries are. I think many Democrats, there was an expectation that Hillary Clinton would be the nominee for quite some time. Uh, There's significant satisfaction with Hillary Clinton being the nominee within the party itself. But there are certainly also people in the Democratic Party who are disappointed or who saw missed opportunities in that primary. On the Republican side, there's a lot to be learned about what the party needs to start speaking about policy-wise, what groups they need to appeal to, and how to deal with an issue um, or a candidate like Donald Trump in the future. A lot of people accuse the party of not getting ahead of what has become a real problem for them early on in the Trump candidacy. And I think in future races, you're going to see a much more strategic attempt by the party and by other people running for president to not let something like this happen again. Well, all right, John, we're down to the wire. I thank you again for your time and your insight on this. Thank you. On Wednesday, November 9th, John will be part of an expert panel to address the outcome of this presidential election. I'm glad to say all of the participants have been guests and contributors to this show. 
It promises to be a fascinating event no matter who wins. The event will be webcast live on brookings.edu starting at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, November 9th. Trade, migration, diversity, and technology are some of the enduring forces that have shaped cities since ancient times and continue to do so today. In a new book in our short history series, Greg Clark, a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings and an associate at the London School of Economics, talks with my colleague Bill Finan about the rise and fall of global cities and which ones will be the global leaders of tomorrow. This is the first of three parts of this discussion. Thanks, Red, and hello, Greg. Your book is the first in our series of short histories, Global Cities of Short History, and so congratulations on that. Thank you. I'm going to begin with a, a really broad question. What is a global city? Well, interestingly, Bill, you've asked the most difficult question because ah. uh, in the this is obviously a history, so we've tried very hard not to define what a global city is, but to observe how different cities in history have become global mm -hmm. and have sustained global roles. There's so, no secret sauce. There's a secret sauce ah. in a sense, which we've tried to identify, which has five elements. Um, but what we've observed firstly is that global cities seem to uh, or cities seem to globalize in cycles. So at certain periods of time, different things make cities globalize. They globalize in waves. So groups of cities globalize at the same time. And they globalize through very specific kinds of paths. So there are particular routes that they take to becoming global, whether it's trade or whether it's about geopolitics or whether it's to do with other things. Well, so we didn't set out to define what a global city is, but I have in the book characterized the different ways that different authors have talked about globalness. When you look at the history, though, I think five things really pop out. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is that cities that globalize tend to be involved in trade. And of course, in the modern era, that means cross-border trade. Many of the cities in the book, of course, pre-exist nation states, so there's no such thing as borders of nations. We're talking about dynasties and empires and colonies and other things. But trade is the first thing. The second thing very clearly is that they attract diverse and entrepreneurial populations. And over time, this proves to be true both 2,000 years BC and also in 2016. They tend to be cities that innovate to solve problems and then their innovations become a source of influence for them in one way or another. They also are cities that take advantage of a geopolitical opportunity that arises, system changes, regime changes. These cities are there to optimise their potential. And then lastly, they tend to be cities that discover new markets or, or new products or new ways of doing things. So we don't have a definition, but we do have an observation that these five things tend to be visible when you look at the cities that have globalised successfully. So one of the themes that runs through the book, too, is globalization and global cities. Can you explain briefly the connection between those two? You just I know you touched on it here with the description of them in some ways. Well, by globalization, of course, we mean the increasing uh, interaction and interdependence of different parts of a global system of production, uh, exchange and trade. And when we talk about interaction and interdependence, we mean that countries, if you like, in the modern era, come to rely upon one another for trade and sectors of the economy tend to have value chains that are located in different parts of the world and businesses tend to take on a transnational character. So businesses operate in more than one country. So 
that's what globalization is. And what we observe from looking at cities, of course, is that cities are the place where the global economy is produced. They're the place where the global economy is managed. They're the places where the global economy is resourced. And they're the places where the global economy is capitalized. So cities play a production role in the global economy. And the cities that do this the most are the global cities. So we'll come back to globalization uh, near the end of this interview. I want to go jump back into the past because the book is a short history. And as all histories, you begin at the beginning. And the beginning here is global cities and antiquity. Um, what was interesting to me is the discussions of Alexandria and Rome, of course. But what was more interesting to me is your, the breadth of your discussion, which goes to Mesoamerica and to China, too. And you described some global cities in China. And I would like you to compare and contrast those with those in Europe into those that occurred in antiquity because you showed that the Chinese cities were very progressive at that time and economically advanced and in a way that most, I think, most Western-centric textbooks and histories don't talk about that. Well, this was in a deliberate attempt, in a sense, to correct some of the misunderstanding that's often promulgated about which cities emerged and evolved in which ways and at which time. And I thought it was very important to talk about the Mesoamerican cities, the Chinese cities, the cities of the, the, the Indus Basin uh, and Pakistan, and to remind, in a sense, our readership that the great trading cities of antiquity often came from parts of the world that we now see as newly joining the global economy. So if we pick up the, the six Chinese cities that we talk about in some detail, we look at the cities that were dominant in each of the dynasties, and we talk about the role that they played Firstly, in, in, in the manufacture and then the trade in rare and precious materials. And obviously, silk is the well-known story, but other things such as spice and tea, of course, and some of the jewellery and the precious stones become very important. And as you go through each dynasty and you hear about the role that those cities played, particularly during that period um, that sort of uh, begins about uh, 10,000 AD and goes on from there, um, you, you hear, I think, a, a lot about all of that. Um, we couch this conversation, Bill, of course, in analysis of what I would call 10 cycles of globalization and how cities have engaged. And this period is, is just the middle part because, uh, as you'll remember, we begin with the Phoenicians, the Persians, mm -hmm. and the Silk Roads. We go on to the kind of the post-Roman Empire period and really the heyday of Baghdad, which many people have forgotten. And then from that, we go into the story of the 1300s, the Hanseatic League, and everything else. So I think the Chinese cities, the Mesoamerican cities, the cities of the Indus Basin, all were prominent in their day. They were cosmopolitan cities. They played key roles in uh, trade. They also played key, key roles in the management of dynasties, empires, and other kinds of groups. And uh, we forget them at our peril. Of course, it's interesting that when you get to the end of the book, uh, one is reminded of the one belt, one road strategy of the Chinese government and the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank today and how those very roads that were the old infrastructure, as it were, of the system of cities that we described back in the 1300s, those roads, of course, are being renewed and expanded and a new, a new program of city development enabled by infrastructure is coming now. You talk about the global cities of today having their roots in the industrial age. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, what those cities are? Um, you have a term for them, too. I can't remember what exactly it was. Well, we have two or three terms, but I suppose what we, we start with um, 
uh, when we come into what I would call sort of wave seven uh, or cycle seven, where we talk about the early industrial wave, we talk about Guangzhou there, of course, and the, the way that Guangzhou as a, as a port city and an industrial city in, in China at the time, you know, late 1700s, became a city that was forced to globalize as part of this conflict that emerged around, you know, the European desire for tea, the need to pay for that, and opium being the way in which uh, the West, in a sense, forced opium upon the Chinese market in order to create the currency to buy tea. So Guangzhou, I think, a very interesting tale from all of that. But we then go on to make the observation that the industrializing cities, that we, we talk about the, the mass industrial wave from 1850 onwards, obviously the Industrial Revolution had its birth in the United Kingdom, in, in Western Europe, uh, and, of course, in the northern parts of the Mediterranean. Barcelona is a very important city in this period of development, but the the mechanization of industry and the relationship between that capital flows and trade flows, of course, was very important. And that gave rise to a whole series of cities uh, under a really an imperial structure that was dominated firstly by the British Empire and then, of course, latterly by the French and eventually uh, through the period of American domination. And uh, Los Angeles, of course, emerges as a really important city there. And you'll have seen in the book how Los Angeles grew very dramatically, became uh, one of the great industrial cities uh, of America and also at the same time, hugely expanded its role as a port city, became the entrepot between America and the Asia-Pacific region, and how industry led to trade, that led to capital, and then how spare capital, of course, ended up founding and investing in a, a whole industry of, of, of creation and film and TV and everything else that we know Los Angeles for today. So that group of cities um, have been very important, and in uh, Northern and Western Europe, it's been very important for them uh, to recognize this great past of being the global cities uh, of the 1800s, because, of course, many of them have suffered terribly through the process of deindustrialization uh, in the 1900s and the 2000s. Pushing on through the 20th century, then we come to Los Angeles, I guess, in a case, too, of information and technology creating a different kind of global city. You mentioned one that jumped out at me was Bangalore on the basis of one software company. Sure. I mean, this is an extraordinary story, isn't it, of an Indian city creating the circumstances where a software company is willing to invest there and then using that to trigger a whole generation of investment in skills, technology, infrastructure, becoming, of course, a location for outsourcing and other activities, building a business processing industry around that, a semiconductor industry emerging there, and then, if you like, a fully integrated uh, IT hub. Um, but we also tell the story of this time in a sense of how technology uh, played a role in, in San Francisco's evolution, you know, uh, post-1980s and the, the emergence of what we now all think of as Silicon Valley but really emerged as a series of, of IT interventions that led to a software industry emerging and then the relationship between San Francisco and San Jose and the universities and all of that. But at the same time, I think we mentioned Hong Kong in this chapter as a really good example of a city for whom the ICT revolution changed the nature of what they could do and they were able to and, shift... I'm sorry, and ICT means... Information and communication right. technologies. How Hong Kong was able to use, as it 
were the the technologicalization mm-hmm. of finance and business services to make the transition from being a light manufacturing city to being a global financial hub and so that technological wave that you know we really identify as being sort of early 1980s onwards uh, has been a very important cycle and an important wave using technology to drive globalization forward and to enable individual cities to restructure and reorganize around those opportunities. You can find Global Cities A Short History on our website. Hey listeners, do you have a question you want to ask an expert? You can send in your question to our email address, bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Souter is the producer. Bill Feynman does the book interviews. And design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fowal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Find us on the website at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>